passages together as we return to the subject of what the Bible has to say about this issue of racism. It's been several weeks since uh, our first message on this, but I did want to return to it, had a little more that I felt ought to be said, and so I wanted to say it tonight. When we looked at this last time, I defined racism as a form of pride. Define racism as a form of pride in which a person believes himself to be morally or spiritually or intellectually superior to another person on the basis of skin color. Feeling of superiority towards someone else by virtue of a different skin color. Now we did take time to talk about the very foolishness of even the language of race. Anytime we begin grouping people together by skin color as if they are the same, we're making a very obvious and huge mistake because two people of white skin, for example, may be from different parts of the world with different cultures, different customs, different languages, and have absolutely nothing in common except for the fact that their skin is similar in color. Two people of very different skin colors may be from the same town, even the same family, may speak the same language, may have the same custom, may have grown up in the same culture, and have much in common. So as soon as we start talking about black people or white people, grouping them together as if they are the same, we're speaking in a way that is largely superficial. And if we were wise, I think we would use the language of ethnicity. Ethnicity refers to more than skin color. It refers to heritage. It refers to culture. It refers to language. It refers to to your recent ancestry. And I mentioned in that previous message that there is a, a sin in which a person of one ethnicity, maybe a white, middle class, suburban American, believes himself to be inherently more valuable than a person of another ethnicity, say a lower class, urban, black American. That sin is called ethnocentrism, and we ought to guard ourselves against that sin. But because we are still foolishly tempted to lump people together simply by the color of their skin as if they are the same, and because there is still this temptation to make value judgments about people by virtue of that skin color, we are going to be using the language of race tonight and talking about racism. Now we've already seen four important scriptural truths concerning racism. So let me just briefly remind you, it's been about a month now, so here are the the four truths we already saw. We began in Genesis 1, and we saw that there is a fundamental unity to the human race. That was the first truth we saw. There is a fundamental unity to the human race. Choose any other person on this planet, and you will find that there is much more that makes you the same than makes you different. We're all descended from Adam, We all have the same basic biological makeup. We all bear the image of God. We all have thoughts and words and emotions. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. 
And so when we see someone of another skin color, we ought to still see them first as someone who is like us, not as someone who is unlike us. We are ultimately all a part of one race, the human race, sharing one family tree. Now the second point we saw last time was that God purposed and is glorified in the diversity of the human race. God purposed and is glorified in the diversity of the human race. Different cultures and people groups came about by the sovereign hand of God. It was God's will that the human race become a family of many families with many different languages and cultures and customs. Our God is one, and yet our God is three. Our God loves unity and diversity together. Third, we looked at Genesis 12, and we saw God's redemptive plan to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That was point number three. God's redemptive plan is to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God told Abram that all the nations would be blessed through him. Revelation 5.9 says, Worthy, talking of Christ, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so God's salvation plan includes saving people from every kind of people group and making them into one kingdom, one body, so that there is both diversity and unity in the kingdom of Christ. Christ did not die for people of a particular skin color. Christ died for peoples of all kinds of skin colors. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, we spent time in Exodus 2. We spent time in Numbers 12, looking at the two wives of Moses. And our fourth point was this, that it is marrying a person of another religion that is wicked in God's sight, not marrying a person of a different race or a different skin color. Those who claim that interracial marriage is a sin and try and go to the Bible to prove their case will not be able to do so if they deal honestly with the Scriptures. And we saw that made clear, I think, with the story of the two wives of Moses. So interracial marriage is not a sin. Um, interreligious marriage, marrying someone who believes in a different God, that is a sin. Now, there are a few more lessons that I want us to see from the Scriptures on the subject of racism. Uh, honestly, there's several more I'd like us to see. We're really only going to look at two and then we're going to just be done. So two points that I want to make tonight. So if we continue with our list, this would be point number five about what the Bible says about racism. And here's point number five. God's people should not be opposed to being led by someone of a different skin color. God's people should not be opposed to being led by someone of a different skin color. So right now, we as a church are in the process of moving towards biblical eldership. We hope to bring on a, a second pastor, a second elder soon, a, a lay pastor. And we'd love to get to the place where maybe over the, the next several years, we could even add a, a third. So I want you to suppose that we are looking for a, a godly man to help us in leading this church and caring for us. And suppose we were to find 
that the man we believed that is the best fit for our congregation was a black man. He's trained in the scriptures. He can preach well. He has a passion for Jesus. He loves God's people. He has a tender shepherd's heart. So much of what we were looking for in a pastor, this man has by the grace of God. And by the way, his skin is black. How would you respond if such a man was brought forward to be a pastor, even here in our midst? Look with me at Exodus 6. Exodus chapter 6. As you do, let me remind you that when Israel came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, there were many who were not Jews who came with them. In particular, there were many Africans who joined the Jews and became a part of national Israel when that nation was constituted at Mount Sinai. And what I want us to see is that people of different races were not only in Old Testament Israel, but God raised up people of different races to actually hold positions of leadership in Old Testament Israel. And I want to point to one in particular who was very prominent in the Old Testament. He's Aaron's grandson. So look at Exodus 6, beginning in verse 16. Exodus 6, beginning in verse 16, we have a genealogy of the priestly line of Israel. Okay? This is the line of Levi. And beginning with Aaron, his descendants were the religious leaders of Israel. Aaron was the first of these. And we see his sons. Go down to verse 23. Verse 23. See the sons of Aaron. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the genealogy goes on to only mention one of Aaron's grandchildren. We assume there were many others, but the genealogy only mentions one of Aaron's grandchildren. Verse 25. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. So why is special attention paid to Phinehas? Well, as we will see in, in a moment, Phinehas became something of a hero in Israel. Phinehas was not only a priest in Israel, he became one who was celebrated throughout the history of the Jews. He was to become one of the greatest priests in the history of Israel. And here's the thing about Phinehas. All indications are that he was of a different race and a different skin color than most of the people whom he was leading in Israel. You see, Eleazar, a Jew... Grand, I'm sorry, son of Aaron, married a daughter of Putiel. That's an Egyptian name. Okay? Married the daughter of an Egyptian. Eleazar married an African woman. Their son, Phinehas, almost certainly had dark skin. How do we know? Because the name Phinehas literally means the Negro. 
The name Phineas literally means the Nubian, the Cushite, the black one. So whichever translation you choose, the indication of, from this man's name is that he was a very black man. And he was a priest in Israel. Now turn with me to Numbers 25 and let's see how he became such a hero. Numbers 25. I'm going to begin reading Numbers 25 and verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So, so this is not a happy day in Israel. This nation has once again fallen into idolatry and sexual immorality. There was this plague that would tempt Israel throughout her history. It was the temptation to idolatry. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet here, Israel gave in and indulged in the worship of Baal. Now, if you wonder why this was always such a temptation to the Jews, it's because the worship of Baal included sexual immorality. The way you worshipped Baal was through being with a prostitute. And so Israel became involved with these Midianite women. And God is bringing judgment. And those who have done this are going to die. Now let's keep reading in verse 6 and see what happens. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So, so picture this. The people of Israel are gathered together at the tent of meeting. They're weeping they may have been weeping in godly repentance, grieving what has happened to the nation. They may have been weeping simply because they just heard the word from God that the penalty of death was going to be carried out on thousands of Israelites who had been involved in this sin. And so here they are weeping. And in this moment, in such a way that the people could clearly see it, a Midianite, Baal-worshipping woman was brought into the camp by a man to be taken into the tent of one of the men of his family. The very thing that God had just pronounced judgment upon was being blatantly done in the sight of the people as they're weeping. Moses had just declared those who do this thing should die. I mean, this, this was like spitting directly into God's face, right? 
I hear what you're, what you're saying, God, and we're going to keep on doing what we're doing. Thank you. So it was a direct reproach against the very holiness and glory of God. And so look at verses 7 through 9 and see what happens. Beginning in verse 7. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, so there's Phinehas, when he, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. And thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Remember how Levi, Levi the son of Jacob, had recklessly gone with his brother Simeon into the city of Shechem and killed every single person there for the honor of their sister who had been defiled? It was a wicked, wicked act that Levi and Simeon did going into the city and and just killing them all because their sister had been defiled by one of their citizens. Though it was a wicked act, God through Jacob put a blessing on Levi. And he said that Levi's passion and zeal would now be directed in a better direction. That it would be Levi's family who would be responsible for protecting the honor of God. That they would be the Levites, those with a zeal for God's glory. These were the men, the priests of Israel, who with their very lives and their very offices were to display the reverence and the honor of which God is worthy. And so Phinehas in this passage, much like his father and his grandfather in previous passages, steps out and does what is necessary to carry out the law of God and defend God's honor. He took the lives of these two people and in doing so spared the lives of many, many more. Now look at how God responds to what Phinehas did in verses 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now that's really just the beginning of Phinehas' fame. We could go to Numbers 31 and see how Phinehas leads this military strike against the Midianites that wipes them out. In Joshua 22... It is Phinehas who steps up to play a key role in saving the nation of Israel from a civil war when the eastern tribes were having negotiations with the the other tribes. Then on top of this is Psalm 106. Just listen to this. Psalm 106, 28-31. Listen to what this psalm says about what we just read. Then they, Israel, yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. 
They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Did you hear that? I mean, it's the kind of language only used of one other man in the Bible. Abraham. Phinehas' intervention, his act of obedient faith, was counted to him as righteousness. This is the same gospel language that Paul turns to in Romans 4 to explain our own salvation. So not only did God place his covenant of peace upon Phinehas and bless him and his descendants with the very priesthood of Israel, but he's actually lifted up as the model of a model of what, of what a saved person should look like. Zeal for the honor of God marks people of faith. J. Daniel Hayes rightly says this. See what you think. Imagine the different route American Christianity might have traveled had the translators of the King James Bible known Egyptian and therefore translated the name Phinehas as the Negro. The early Americans would have read that God made an eternal covenant with the Negro, that all the legitimate Israelite priests would have to be connected to the Negro, that God credited righteousness to the Negro. With such texts available, it would have been extremely difficult to defend slavery or to maintain any type of superiority, inferiority, racial views. The point I'm making is that the color of a person's skin plays absolutely no determination in the kind of leader that person will be. This applies to our own nation. We must never think that a person will be a poor president or a poor senator or a poor representative or a poor Supreme Court justice because of the color of his or her skin. You know the quote by Martin Luther King Jr. He longed for the day when people would be judged by the content of their character rather than by the color of their skin. That is exactly what Christians ought to model every day. We ought to lead the way in showing others that it is the heart that matters. It is integrity that matters. It is the fear of the Lord that matters. It is loving God and loving others that matters. Skin color does not matter. Tells us almost nothing about who a person really is. My prayer is that if we were ever to bring before you a man of another race to serve as a pastor in our church, We would not judge such a man by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And should he be a qualified man for the pastorate, I pray we would bring him on and find great joy in knowing that God is glorified when there is diversity with unity among his people. Now, of course, this not only applies to leadership. Again, there are other passages I would like us to look at, but... I really want to get to kind of the the very main point that I've been kind of driving to in these two messages, which is this. Having people of other skin colors join us in a local church 
should be a cause for celebration and thanksgiving and nothing less than that. Having people come among us and even join with us of different skin colors should be a cause for celebration and thanksgiving and nothing less than that. If we had time, we would go to Jeremiah 38, 39. There's a Cushite man there named Ebed-Melech who comes to Jeremiah's rescue, plays a crucial role in Jeremiah's ministry. Everybody else in Judah had rejected Jeremiah, but there was this one man, this African man who was a great example of a man of faith who comes to Jeremiah's rescue. We could go to the book of Acts, especially Acts 8, see how God God took the gospel to Africa before God took the gospel to Europe, which I think is significant. But turn with me now to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. point I'm making is that having people of other skin colors join us here in our church should be a cause for real joy. Why? Why? Because having unity in diversity within a local church is a glorious picture of the gospel and the power of Christ to break down barriers. Look at Galatians 3 beginning in verse 26. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is teaching here is that just as there is a fundamental unity to the human race, there is also a fundamental unity to the body of Christ. It isn't that Jews stop being Jews. It isn't that Greeks stop being Greeks when they become Christians. It wasn't that slaves ceased being slaves or masters stopped being masters. And of course, we don't cease being male or female. But rather, the idea is that those things no longer keep us from being one. We don't ignore the differences. But those differences are no longer the chief thing about us. We are all Christians. And in Christ, we are a united people. We are a family. We are one body sharing one faith in one Lord. We are indwelt by one Spirit and heading towards one heaven where we will dwell with our one God forever. And so God's people are not to be a people of factions. In Galatians, it was Jewish Christians versus Gentile Christians. Some still regarded themselves more by their ethnicity than by their identity in Christ. Dear friends, when you think about who you are, what comes to your mind first? If I were simply to ask you the question, who are you? What do you say first? Do you think first of your job? I'm a dentist. I'm a homemaker. I'm a doctor. Do you think first of your family roles? Well, I'm I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a parent. A grandparent. Do you think first of your earthly citizenships? Who am I? I'm an American. I'm a Carolinian. 
What Paul is saying is that when we think first and foremost of who we are, we ought to think first, I am a Christian. And that that trumps everything else. And that everything else you are is in service to that reality. You are no longer a Jew, you're a Christian Jew. You're no longer a Gentile, you're a a Christian Gentile. You're no longer a slave, you're a Christian slave. You're no longer a man or woman, you're a Christian man or woman. And this is how we're to think of ourselves. Christ changes everything. The fact that we are a Christian influences every other aspect of who we are. But this isn't just how we're to think about ourselves. This is how we're to think about one another. When you meet a brother or sister in Christ who is of a different skin color than you, you must not think first of that person as a a black person or or a Hispanic person or an Asian person. Rather, you must think of that person first and foremost as a fellow believer, as a brother or sister in Christ. That's the most important thing. That's the fundamental thing. Turn over to Ephesians 2, just a page over. Ephesians 2. Beginning in verse 14. Speaking of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Speaking here of the Jew-Gentile division, now it is destroyed at the cross. There is no barrier now the Jew and Gentile being one. Dear friends, Jesus died so that people with differences would be one. Jesus shed His blood that the hostility between various factions would go away and that peace would come into those relationships. Jesus is creating one body in which peace reigns. Blessed diversity, blessed unity. It's who God is, it's who the church is. And reconciliation and peace with God ought to show itself in reconciliation and peace with others. One author says, no, speaking of this passage, nowhere is this theology more important for modern Christians than in dealing with racial hostility. Christians of other races are part of us, and divisions cannot be allowed to continue. The racial barrier is like a festering wound in the body of Christ. Sunday is often the most segregated day of the week, for Christians worship along racial lines. The perversion of both active and passive racism must be challenged and stopped. Racism will have to be treated on two levels, both as a general societal problem, but also specifically within the body of Christ. 
Racism in any form is prohibited by the equality of all people before God and His unrestricted love. But the theology of the body of Christ deals with the issue at a whole other level. The point is not merely that all Christians are equal. Rather, the point is that all Christians have been joined, which has far more significance and impact. You have been joined to your black brothers and sisters. You are one with them, Christian. You are one with them. They are a part of your family. You are connected to them by the Spirit of God. John Stott says this. See if you agree. It is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus by His cross abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of love while at the same time we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship. We need to get the failures of the church on our conscience to feel the offense of Christ, to weep over the credibility gap between the church's talk and the church's walk, to repent of our readiness to excuse and even condone our failures and to determine to do something about it. I wonder if there is anything more urgent today, says Stott, for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel, than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is, a single you humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other. <coughs> Excuse me the evident dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Only then will the world believe that Christ is a peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due His name. Mount Hermon, local churches are going to reflect the cultures that they are in. The, the style of our buildings, the musical instruments we use in worship, the clothes we wear, when we gather together, they're going to reflect our culture. And in our city, there are still areas that are predominantly black and areas that are predominantly white. And the churches in those various areas tend to reflect the skin colors of the parts of the city where they are at. There are white, whiter churches and in parts of Rocky Mount that are more white, and there are blacker churches in parts of Rocky Mount that are more black. But the more that, that whites and blacks and others, right, and Hispanics, the more that, that they begin to actually live together in communities, the more likely it is that local churches in those communities will begin to take on a mixed-race culture. For us, here's what I want to be careful about. I don't want us to ever define our church in terms of race. 
we should not ever be thinking of ourselves as a white church in any permanent way. For if God was to bring us new members who are black or Hispanic or Asian, we should be eager and happy to have them among us, to love them and to be loved by them. We should be eager to share the gospel with all people, and we must not be hindered from evangelism by the false barrier of skin color. Should God bring people of other skin colors into our church, it ought to be something exciting for us. Let me be clear. If you have a problem worshiping with a brother or sister in Christ of another race, then you have a problem with God's will for your life. If you are a Christian, you will worship with people of different races for all eternity. It is a part of God's plan for you. There is no indication in the Bible that variety of skin color is going to change when we get to heaven. We will dwell in the presence of the Lord with these brothers and sisters in Christ, and they will be a part of our lives. You will have fellowship with these brothers and sisters, and that fellowship will be sweet in heaven. And if that's what it's going to be like in heaven, what do you mean when you pray, Thy will be done on earth? as it is in heaven. Do we not long for the same thing to be true here that will be true there? We are today to pursue in part what we will know in fullness then. Are you eager and happy to form relationships and share the gospel with anyone you meet regardless of what they look like? And I tell you how much it bothers me when I hear a white Christian say, well, those people worship differently than we do. They do things differently, so let them have their church, we'll have our church. First of all, be careful about saying those people as if every person of a skin color is alike. Are there not many within each race that prefer vastly different things, including vastly different styles of music and other things. What's more, cannot people change? Cannot people gathered around the Bible have their ideas about what worship should be change? Could it be that we have some things to learn? Moreover, after Christ gave His blood to remove the obstacles that separate us so that we would be one in heart and mind with our brothers and sisters. Are we really going to let something like worship style keep us apart? Remember the early 20th century. Remember how many people in the South said, okay, sure, we're going to treat blacks just like other people. And so we're going to give them their own bathrooms. And we're going to give them their own water fountains. And we're going to give them their own schools. Was that equality? Was that brotherhood and sisterhood? No, it was a lie. Segregation is not being one. Segregation is not having fellowship with one another, being united in heart and mind and prayers and in song, in life together, in relationships. Can you imagine if we viewed marriage this way? Husband and wife become one. 
And now husband and wife live in different homes and hang out with different friends and live separate lives. Would we say they're one? That couple would be failing to live out the unity that God has given to them. They would miss out on a thousand blessings by trying to do oneness that way. And so it is with the church of Christ when we are one fundamentally, but not in practice. This is the mistake we make when we group ourselves into black churches and white churches and Latino churches with with flimsy excuses about why we can't worship together and then teach in our pulpits that we're all one in Christ. The Church of Christ in America has failed to apply the gospel to our multi-ethnic context. If we take seriously the gospel and its implications, we ought to especially desire joyful, rich relationships with brothers and sisters who are different from us. So Mount Hermon, don't be afraid to take the gospel to anyone and everyone. And should God bless and should God bring into our church people of different races? Let us see them first and foremost as fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. And let us celebrate that our God is glorified when there is unity in diversity. Amen? Let's pray.